Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, the program that tackles each week the big questions, the biggest questions that you can ask in relation to where we came from. Why are we here? Where are we headed? Where did this universe come from? Where did humanity and life come from? Well, those are the questions, at least a few of the big questions that we're tackling and we're exploring, both from the vantage point of new scientific discoveries, information that's flowing in from the scientific world, all the branches of science, and the information, the data that comes to us from uh, the one who created the universe, who created mankind the creator himself through uh, the scriptures. So we're uh, unabashedly comparing and kind of coalescing and putting together and showing uh, an extraordinary fit between the rather elegant statements of scripture and the interesting findings of science. And of course, one of the things that has been uh, a special joy of me to do on this uh, broadcast week by week over the last 24 months is to have Dr. Bill Carl. I gave you an honorary (laughs) doctorate there. (laughs) All right. Doctor means teacher. So you're teaching me all about writing. My doctorate of letters. Honorary doctorate of letters. Yes. So thank you, Bill Carl. And thank you, uh, St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute for supporting this program. Our new sponsor, of course, St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute has a tradition of excellence with love began, of course, more than 38 years ago. When Dr. James Gills founded St. Luke's, a few years later, St. Luke's became the first practice in the nation dedicated exclusively to cataract and implant surgery. You know, think I'm just thinking, Bill, what a what a joy and what a privilege it is to have this linkage and the support of St. Luke's. Cataract well, and, and, and not just not just to the eye center itself, but to such a quality person as Dr. Gills. Yeah, fantastic uh, pioneer, not only in cataract surgery and other kinds of eye care, but also an expert on intelligent design. He was on the phone just a few days ago, pepping me up with new developments in that area. St. Luke's offers vision care services at convenient locations throughout the greater Tampa Bay area, including Spring Hill, Bayonet Point and St. Petersburg. Of course, in addition to their Tarpon Springs office, you can reach them. Uh, through calling 727-938-2020. I think that's a perfect number for an eye center, an eye hospital. <laughs> 928-727-938-2020. We also thank the C.S. Lewis Society, uh, which I have had, the, again, the joy of leading for 20 years now as of this month, based at Trinity College. C.S. Lewis Society, a Christian organization attempting and seeking to present compelling evidence for Christian faith, uh, just where uh, it's often under fire, university campuses. Well, we have on the phone with us one of the, I guess you might say, leaders, pioneers, top researchers and thinkers of intelligent design in the entire world. He is Dr. Paul Nelson, a graduate with a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, a very elite university up there uh, in Chicago. And he did his uh, Ph.D. studies in the philosophy of science tackling the issue of common descent. A very, very important topic. The idea of common descent or common ancestry is foundational to the neo-Darwinian theory. So I want to welcome to the phone, I think for maybe the second or third time, uh, Dr. Paul Nelson. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to join you. And I appreciate your research and uh, all that you've done and not only writing. You know, I know you've written scads of articles. I know Signs of Intelligence is one of my favorite books. And your article in there is one of my favorite chapters. And, of course, on the Internet, uh, you know, probably if you Google Paul Nelson, I, I suppose the Darwinists probably have nasty things to say. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it'll be a mixed bag. Yeah, be a mixed bag thanks to the uh, your, your fan club in the Darwin community. But, of course, tremendous... Uh, information and i believe your relationship uh with discovery institute i I believe you've been a fellow with them yes uh for over 10 years now tremendous tremendous well i know there's probably a whole page there that people can access uh, with your writings and commentary your research at the discovery institute at discovery.org but let's tackle the topic for today straight straight off uh from the top here we have about uh seven or eight minutes left in the segment, I want to get right into the issue of orphan genes. And I know that you have written on this, you've spoken extensively, not only in the U.S., but overseas in the front of university audiences about the puzzle, the kind of mystery of orphan genes. Now, a gene, of course, I've described on this broadcast as a snippet of DNA, a little, you might say, like a piece of yarn. Instead of being made of twisted cotton or twisted um, wool, this is made up of the nucleic acids, the little pairs of letters lined up. And so a gene, of course, a snippet or a string of DNA rolled up, of course, inside uh, inside some cells, eukaryote cells like ours, are spooled up, aren't they, on little histone spools? Yes, they're, they're spooled up on proteins called histones. Gotcha which themselves uh, wrap up in complicated ways. Right. Uh, our DNA has to be very tightly packed hmm. uh, in chromosomes in order to pass it from one generation to the next. But if you unspooled it all, it would be meters long. Wow. Uh, a big, long molecule. Mm-hmm. Orphan genes uh, represent a puzzle uh, that never ceases to amaze me. Hmm. Let me give you just a little background. When I was a graduate student writing my uh, dissertation, I looked at the question of what would test Darwin's theory of common descent. Uh, We need to be able to know under what circumstances, given what evidence, uh, this theory would turn out not to be true. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we ask that of all our scientific theories. So I was trying to answer that question, and I looked at one prediction that evolutionary theory had made, namely that if we examine different organisms, organisms as different as a, a bacterial cell, like E. coli in your, in your gut, or an oak tree, or a blue whale, uh, or your dog, that when we look at their fundamental biochemistry, the bits and pieces that make the cells go, we should find largely the same bits and pieces down at the basic biochemistry of life. There's a good reason for that expectation given evolution. Uh, The complexity of life is very great, even at the simplest level. And the argument would be, well, look, evolution invented these systems once. They were so critical to the function of all cells uh, uh, that that those basic features were then conserved to all living organisms. That's a strong prediction. You can find it in textbooks uh, of evolution and biology, for that matter. Now, what happened was amazing. In the mid-1990s, a number of inventions in theoretical biology uh, and practical biology uh, occurred, the most significant of which was that DNA could now be sequenced, that is, its, its letters determined very rapidly 
uh, in an automated way. And that's what enabled the human genome revolution or exactly. study to take to take off. Okay, exactly. And where when I was a student of biology uh, in the uh, early and mid 1980s, uh, biologists would have to content themselves with looking at just one or a few genes and proteins from a range of organisms. Hmm. Now it was as if a fire hose, a big one, wow, a, a big fire hose had been opened, and there was a flood of genetic data that had never been seen before. And rapidly, the sample that we had from biology at the genetic level went from just a few genes and proteins to literally millions, mm. almost overnight. Uh, and a number of surprises came out of that evidence, I think the most significant of which was orphans. Okay. So having laid that background, let me now explain what an orphan is. Okay. And There's of course, if I, if, I, if I can just jump in and just mention, there is a, a, a chapter in a book that Dr. Gills and I put together, which deals with the orphan gene mystery of the yeast, you know, genome when it was sequenced. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's Darwinism, yes. Darwinism under the microscope. I thought I would just put a plug in for our book. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, there's a pun in the name orphan. Mm -hmm. um, as we know, little orphan Annie, mm -hmm. an orphan child... An orphan is a, is a child or a, an organism without obvious parents, or the parents have been lost, so to speak. But in molecular biology, ORF, O-R-F, the letters O-R-F, uh, form an acronym that stands for Open Reading Frame. Open that Reading Frame. This is a segment of DNA uh, that codes for a protein, or very likely codes for a protein. You can think of it as a little genetic word, if you will. And actually, the comparison to language is quite striking. Uh, you can think about uh, the genes that we have as forming a kind of dictionary of genetic words. Orphans are genetic words that have no matches in the genetic dictionaries that we've assembled. Hmm. Um, so uh, a friend of mine uh, worked at GenBank, which is a genetic database uh, maintained in Washington, D.C. by the National Center for Biotechnology Information. And GenBank collects all known genes uh, and stores them in a computer so that when a scientist discovers a new gene, he can compare that gene to the ones that we already know using uh, computer software that matches the sequences of A's, T's, C's, and G's, the base sequence of DNA, very much the way that if you saw a word in, let's say, a newspaper article that was clearly there in the sentence. You know, it's a, it's a word performing a function, but you've never seen the word before. What you'd likely do is go and grab a dictionary or go to an online dictionary and look for a match to find out the meaning of that word. Mm -hmm. What's striking about orphans is, one of the striking things anyway, is that these are genetic words that find no matches in the genetic dictionaries that we have. Okay, Paul, I, since we're near the end of our, our segment here, let me just catch you on that thought. We're, we're dealing with a mystery, uh, 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 an, an unexpected development in genetics, a surprise, a genuine scientific surprise, in that the more we sequence these new genetic libraries, they're popping out complete genetic words that do not have a match with other, let's say, uh, similar libraries and other animals. Is that the basic idea since we have about 20 seconds here? That, that is very clearly the basic idea, okay. yes. And so then this pre presents a major challenge. At least it, it raises new puzzles, new problems 
for the standard neo-Darwinian theory, if I understand you correctly, and we'll be able to tackle those in the next segment. So uh, if you're uh, just tuning in, we're talking today to Dr. Paul Nelson, one of the leading pioneers in intelligent design theory, Ph.D. from the University, very elite University of Chicago. He's with us today. We want to pursue the mystery of these orphan genes that are popping up, throwing gigantic question marks uh, at at the standard theory. You're listening to Darwin or Design. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We're tackling today a very key issue, uh, really a puzzle that's been brought to light through the diligent research of geneticists, uh, biologists working on the genetic code that codes not only human DNA, but DNA of all animals and plants and microbes. And to have uh, this mystery explained to us, we have probably one of the finest experts on this particular problem, a professor actually at uh, various uh, points in his academic career, an author, a spokesperson for intelligent design, a leader in developing the theory of design. Dr. Paul Nelson, who's joining us on the phone from uh, his office in Chicago area. I understand, um, Paul, that uh, your wife is a medical doctor, if I can just bring in a little personal note. Yes, she works on um, pediatric gastroenterology, so kids with upset tummies, I guess you could say. Wow. In fact, her, um, her web address is kidstummydoc.com. Uh, kidstummydoc.com. Yeah, kids, kidstummydoc.com. That's She's, cool. Uh, an assistant professor at Northwestern University here in Chicago. My goodness. Well, you're, you're perking up my ears, uh, Doc. My my son Zachary is a is a, struggles with gastroesophageal reflux disorder, and so that's, we we're very fa- we're very familiar with uh, your wife's work, uh, that type of work, and uh, God bless her for what she does. Yeah, and you yeah, have that's, that's her specialization, reflux. So it's Doctor and Doctor Nelson, <laughs> <laughs> Doctors Paul and uh, your wife's first you name. Take a little ride up to Suzanne. Chicago, Suzanne. Yeah, yeah. But, I actually encourage. My my students at Biola uh, to call me Paul because around our house, Dr. Nelson uh, is my wife. When the phone rings for Dr. Nelson, it's usually for her. Okay, I'll remember that next time I call the Nelson residence. And you and you have two wonderful daughters in there. Yeah, what, 16 teen? and 14. That's exciting. So there are they um, opening up to this whole world of the uh, the debate over genome, genomics and genetics and all this stuff? Or are they well, kind of actually? That- it's funny you should mention that because both of them this year are taking biology. In fact, my older daughter is taking uh, AP biology, and her class is going to be discussing this very issue uh, in the next couple of months. Wow! Yeah, so she came into my office last night asking about materials that she might take in to stimulate discussion. How cool that is. That's like, you know, Einstein's son coming said saying, Dad, can you prep me on a little bit of physics here? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. The, I, the, I, I'm too modest I'm, uh, to, to accept the comparison. Okay, but I, I, well. love, uh, I love this topic in part because it's so, it makes science come alive. It's so mm. rich with implications uh, that having a, a lively discussion just brings all kinds of stuff to the surface that uh, that people need to think about. And I think that you uh, have done a masterful job of helping people to understand that it's not so much the work of even intelligent design theorists who are bringing the Darwinian paradigm into crisis. It's the discoveries and the discussions within science, within, let's say, mainstream biology itself, isn't it? 
Yes, I would. I would agree with that. I think that um, that science, uh, as an enterprise, because it's looking at a world that doesn't depend on us, doesn't doesn't depend on our particular viewpoints or prejudices, whether theistic or mm-hmm. atheistic mm-hmm. or agnostic. There's an objectivity to the natural world that when we go out and look at the world. It tells us all kinds of things. If we're even halfway open to the signal that it's sending back to us, wow. the world itself, the, the evidence that's there testifies to something. Mm. So uh, a scientist who begins, let's say, even with a strong atheistic outlook, if he's an objective researcher, will discover things that surprise him. Mm. And this applies, I think, right across the board to the, the whole enterprise of scientific discovery, not just in biology, but in cosmology and other fields, uh, that... The, the independence and objectivity of nature, if we give her half a chance, she will talk back to us. She is, she is stubborn. She's recalcitrant. She <laughs> just keeps on saying whatever she wants to say. Whether we you, like, you, can't, you can't lock her up. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I like to think of, of nature as a very beautiful but very wily woman. Just when you think you've got her locked up, she picks the lock and goes on her own way. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, that's good. Okay, well, back into the orphan genes, and you were comparing, I think, uh, in in your discussion, in your laying out the basic framework of understanding that orphan genes are stretches of DNA. They're recognized as an actual gene, a long, long, you know, genetic word because mm-hmm. because of these telltale marks at the beginning and end of the word that frame yeah. that frame the word, and so we know there's a genetic word there. But these new genes, these ones that don't seem to have parents, seem isolated. They don't seem to have a connection to to supposed parents somewhere. Is that correct? That's right. And um, think about it this way: uh, you could imagine if if we go back to the comparison with language. Mm-hmm that the way that new words are formed in a language is springing from old words. Uh, so, for instance, the verb broadcast. Uh, we say, you know, we broadcast this radio program or we broadcast a television program. Well, if you look at the origin of the verb broadcast, it actually comes from agriculture. Hmm. Uh, uh, a sower would go out with a bag of seed and he would cast it broadly take a handful and throw it out over the field. And then you go back into the origin of broad and cast. Each of those has, a, has an etymology of its own. Hmm. So you can trace the ancestry of words in language by looking at their history. Well, the, the puzzle about orphans is uh, these appear to be genetic words. They're coding for something. They're coding for proteins or perhaps RNAs that function without making a protein. In any case... When you look for their parents, in the evolutionary terms, the genes that gave rise to them, you don't find the parents. Hmm. And two Israeli researchers who work on this, uh, Dan Fisher and Naomi Sue at Ben-Gurion University in the Negev, uh, put it this way. They said, each orphan represents a mystery awaiting interpretation, each of these mysterious genes. How have their sequences, that is the, the, the letter-to-letter you know, genetic text, how have their sequences diverged to such an extent that no similar sequences are detected today? They go on. If evolution works through descent with modification, sort of parent giving rise to offspring, then why is it that no similar sequences are found in other organisms? Why is it that we do not find today any of the necessary intermediate sequences that must have given rise to these orphans? This is an amazing puzzle because each time, now I'm not quoting from them, I'm uh, offering some elaboration. So this, is, so this is Paul Nelson now. This is 
back to Paul. Mm-hmm. I, I'm done quoting from uh, the two Israelis who uh, have, have uh, worked very hard on this on this problem. In fact, uh, Dr. Sue maintains a web page called the Orphanage, uh, where she keeps track of these puzzling genes. Wow! And uh, there are many tens of thousands uh, of them now. Um, uh, the, the the puzzle is that each time a new organism has its DNA sequenced in its entirety. Mm-hmm. The whole library. The whole library. Mm-hmm. The whole library. Typically, for instance, among bacterial groups, about 10% of its genome is orphans. Uh, and that means that for each individual group, you find genes that are specific just to that group and found in no other. Now, this is a real challenge for evolution, especially given the possibility that some of those genes and their protein products may be essential for the biochemistry of that particular group. Uh, and I have an example that we could come back to later. Right. But that, that's why this is a puzzle for evolution. One would not expect, given the assumption of common ancestry, that all living things are arranged in a, a great tree that has a single common ancestor at its root. That was Darwin's view, and that's largely the, the textbook view today. Given that geometry, if you will, plus we think we understand how new genes and proteins arise. New genes and proteins arise from old genes and proteins. Given those two background assumptions, you would not expect to find all these orphans, yet we do. And that's why it's become such an amazing puzzle. So those new orphan genes just kind of just burst, uh, um, at least in terms of genetic relationship to other genes, they burst onto, onto the scene with no close um, letter by letter similarity to supposed ancestor genes. That's right. Okay. They don't find any matches. The way the, the matching algorithms work is they align the sequences very much the way that if you were, again, to revert to a language analogy, mm-hmm. if you were to align two long words and compare them letter by letter, if you had, let's say, a match of 90%, you'd say, well, this is too high of a match to be by chance. Mm-hmm. And these... These orphan sequences, some of them uh, run to many hundreds of nucleotides. So when you have a sequence of that length and complexity and you found a match, let's say 90%, you'd say, well, I've, I found the parent. Orphans don't rise above, in terms of their match, they don't rise above the level of statistical noise. In other wow. Words, there's just no way to compare them or, or you know, there, there aren't any, there aren't any matches. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's how an orphan is defined. Um, and what's amazing is how many there are. Uh, if I can just quote from one article that was sure, published. Sure, we've got about a minute left. Go ahead. Um, this is from a French researcher, Patrick Fortier, uh, uh, who has thought a lot about this problem. He said, when you sequence a bacterial genome, you always end up with genes that are unknown, usually around 10%. He says, you know, it was once thought that this was because we haven't sequenced many genomes, but today, after more than 500 genomes, they've been added to the library, when you sequence a new one, you still get 10% orphans. So that statistic is not falling. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a, a trend line, if you will, that shows no sign of flattening out. So, um, so in other words, as they get more and more of these libraries decoded and, and entered on their database, their little computer databases, and as they compare these libraries, they keep hitting this 10% portion, which is unique to that library of like kind of special rare books, if we compare the genes to books, that they don't find 
parallel books in any of the other libraries. That's right. Okay. They keep finding new genetic words. Wow. That is so amazing. I, I wanted to kind of tackle this and, and go in just a little bit deeper surgery on this issue and, and deal with this, the puzzle uh, that you're bringing out, Paul. Uh, this, we're talking to Dr. Nelson, Paul Nelson, a uh, very, very powerful figure in the intelligent design community and the network of scientists that are developing design theory, Ph.D. in the uh, philosophy of science, working on especially the topic of neo-Darwinism and the problems in, uh, encountered in testing it in, re- in relation to the data. We'll be right back on Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We have a very, very exciting discussion going on on the topic of genetics and what it may reveal about cracks in the foundations of the paradigm of neo-Darwinian genetics and how the DNA that crowds the little library cabinets, you might say the the filing cabinets of our cells, uh, they're they're telltale signs that the um, DNA, not only in our bodies and our cells, but also the cells of all kind of living things, um, are apparently more isolated. They burst onto the scene without known or visible detectable relationship with other snippets of DNA, at least a portion of those filing cabinets, uh, a portion of those um, cellular nuclei. We're just thankful so so much that uh, Dr. James P. Gills and his son, Dr. Pitt Gills, and the whole a group of physicians at the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute have uh, supported our, our program now for over a month, and we are just so appreciative of their sponsorship. We're encouraging you to get in touch with St. Luke's at their main office, uh, 727-938-2020. And, of course, St. Luke's specializes in a whole range of eye care issues, astigmatism, cataracts, uh, all kinds of uh, work that they are now able to do, even with uh, improving vision quality. Um, lens implants and, um, you know, laser surgery is just the tip of the iceberg. So uh, great, great um, eye care. Just give them a call or go online at stlukeseye.com. That's stlukeseye.com. Well, we have on the phone with us today, instructing us, cluing us in on the mystery of orphan genes of Dr. Paul Nelson. Dr. Paul Nelson is a specialist in so many areas of biology and the history of science, the history of Darwinism and design theory. Uh, it's, it's really uh, tempting to want to go into about 12 different directions at once, but we're focusing <laughs> on one direction. Uh, Dr. Paul Nelson, tell us a little bit about recent findings that have kind of enriched or deepened this mystery and how you see it shaking out uh, in this kind of question as to whether there is a designer. Well, let me give you uh, one example of an orphan quite remarkable orphan gene um, and what it may imply uh, for current theories of evolution. Uh, I mentioned in the last segment a French scientist, Patrick Fortier, uh, who has thought quite a bit about this problem. And uh, recently in a paper, uh, he discussed uh, a very special protein called a topoisomerase. Um, This is an enzyme, an essential enzyme in all life as we know it, that performs the function of disentangling DNA. Hmm. Uh, because of the, of the spiraling double helix geometry of DNA, the, molecu- the molecule creates um, 
problems for cells as they manage it. Think about it this way. Uh, if you have an old-fashioned telephone, most people now have a handheld set, but if you have an old-fashioned telephone with a spiral cord that's connected to a wall unit, let's say, you know that with the passage of time, that cord will supercoil. That is, it'll start wrapping up on itself, and if you don't disent, you know, uh, detach the cord from the handset and let out the, the uh, supercoiling that's developed, pretty soon you'll get this big knot. I think, even, I think we've all experienced that, those of us that are 30 years older. <laughs> older. <laughs> um, well, DNA has the same problem, and the topoisomerase relaxes DNA so that the cell can access the information in the molecule. Uh, and so it performs a critical, very specialized function for cells. Now, what Fortier discovered in looking at the work of some Russian scientists was they had identified a topoisomerase in a particular uh, single-celled organism that lives at very, very high temperatures. Uh, it's called a hyperthermophile. That is, it does well, in fact, it flourishes above the boiling point of water. It's an amazing creature. That's incredible. Yeah. And its topoisomerase is unique. No other organism on Earth has this enzyme. In fact, uh, when Fortier wrote these results up, he said, why was Mother Nature so mean as to limit the presence of this enzyme to a single archaeal species? That's the kind of mm -hmm. single-celled organism we're describing. Right. Um, now, why is this a challenge for evolution? Well, let's go back to our picture of Darwin's Tree of Life, where all living things are linked in one great tree, and it has a single common ancestor at the root. Somewhere deep in the history of the Earth, there was a cell that gave rise to all life as we know it. Well, that cell very likely had a topoisomerase because it very likely had DNA and had this problem of handling the supercoiling that arises in a spiraling double helix molecule. Well, how did this novel topoisomerase come into the history of life in a single species? Why don't we find it in other organisms? Hmm. When you look at the geometry of the enzyme, that is its three-dimensional form. It doesn't match up to any other known topoisomerase. So it's like having a molecular tool that is special. Well, it's not like. It is a molecular tool that is specialized to a single species. Now, this pattern of unique biochemical players, if you will, or biochemical tools, because that's what enzymes are down at the cellular level. They're shapes that perform particular functions for you. This pattern seems to be much more general than anyone could have guessed. And what th these you know, sort sorts of pieces of evidence have done is cause many evolutionary theorists to rethink their view of Darwin's tree. Hmm. I'll give you just a couple of examples. And, and the first one I mentioned, listeners can go retrieve this paper for themselves if they have access to the Internet. All they need to do is enter the author's name and a little piece of the title, and they can download the paper and read it for themselves. That's great. The author is Eugene Coonan. His last name is spelled K-O-O-N-I-N. The reason I'm fascinated with that name is that I quote Eugene Coonan in my chapter on the origin of life, so I'm all ears. Oh, well, he's quite a guy. He's a, he's a remarkable scientist. Um, uh, came from Russia, now works at the National, excuse me, the National Center for Biotechnology Information in Washington. Uh, and uh, in this paper, which was published about a year ago, uh, 
the title is The Biological Big Bang Model for the Major Transitions in Evolution. So if you enter his name, Eugene Koonin and Biological Big Bang, Google will take you directly to this paper and you can download it and read it for yourself. He says, look, this kind of evidence, this continuity means that Darwin's tree of life never existed. In fact, I'll quote directly from the paper. He says, I argue, a f- I argue for a fundamentally different solution, that a single uninterrupted tree of life does not exist. Wow. Now, if you had told me as a student, uh, let's say, you know, even in my sort of middle, middle of my graduate study in the late 80s, early 90s, that in 2007, a major evolutionary theorist would say that Darwin's tree never existed, I, I just wouldn't have believed it. You would you'd have you'd have just been say hey that'll that'll never happen in, that'll in, never happen in, in the that'll never happen future. because uh, the textbook view was that Darwin's single tree was as certain as the roundness of the Earth or the molecular composition of matter. Wow! It was part of what you might call the furniture of reality, uh, a basic fact about our universe that will not change, uh, and. That basic fact now has been cast into doubt by many theoreticians. Here's another example. And, and they're not design theorists. In fact, they're strongly opposed to design theory. They're looking for another naturalistic solution to this. That's mystery. right. They're looking for a geometry. If you think of the history of life as a particular pattern or geometry, they're looking for a geometry that will handle the data that genomics uh, uh, has brought to our attention. Um, Here's an example that's perhaps even more striking. Uh, probably the listeners have heard of Craig Venter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of the people who led the push to sequence the human genome. In fact, uh, one of the first draft sequences of the entire human genome was Craig Ventner, excuse me, Craig Venter's own DNA. Wasn't he the one that stood up there in front of the public alongside Francis Collins? The, yes. the, the Human Genome Project director, and so the two of them were kind of collaborating to some extent? Yes, they were collaborating. There was some competition, but there was also collaboration. He has been a a central figure in this genomics revolution that really got up and running. A a towering figure in this area. Oh, yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last August, again, just over a year ago, there was a roundtable held in Connecticut bringing together several prominent evolutionary theorists, and Venter was uh, in the group. And by the way, what I'm going to tell you is, again, something that you can download freely from the web if you're curious and want to read more about it. I'll give you the reference in just a moment. Okay. Venter was asked about these genomic puzzles and his view of them, and he said, I think that, I'm paraphrasing, but I'll read the direct quote in just a moment. He said, I think that we've got to jettison uh, uh, Darwin's tree. And he, and he said uh, that his genomics research, the the amount of molecular and genetic diversity that he's discovered uh, really destroys the single tree picture. He said, uh, you know, this is a quote, we're just at the tip of the iceberg of what the divergence is on this planet. By that he means genetic divergence, diversity. One question is, can we extrapolate back from this data set to describe the most recent common ancestor? Meaning, can we go from the genes that we now know back down the tree to a single common ancestor. He goes on, I don't necessarily buy that there is a single ancestor. It's counterintuitive to me. I think we may have thousands of recent common ancestors, and they are not necessarily so common. So that's, radi- that's radical stuff. It's radical. 
the picture he's describing is rather than a single tree of life, thousands of independent starting points, which got up and running, and they have given rise to life as we know it. And they're not so common in the sense that when you look at their genetic complement, if you will, at their individual genetic libraries, you're going to find some regions of overlap, but a lot of diversity. Well, this is an incredibly important uh, topic that we're tackling. We're listening to a briefing from Dr. Paul Nelson. Dr. Paul Nelson is on the other end of the lineup in Chicago. If you've just joined us, he is a student and a really a, a tremendously well-informed briefer for us of the mystery of orphan genes, genes that really throw down a fundamental challenge, the neo-Darwinian picture of life, the textbook picture we've been handed. We'll be right back with Dr. Paul Nelson on Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, brought to you each week on WTBN by the C.S. Lewis Society, helping skeptics to doubt their doubts uh, on university campuses in the U.S. and overseas, and also by the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, based in Tarpon Springs, Florida, but also in offices all over greater, the greater Tampa Bay area. St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute provides the highest quality of eye care and uh, their motto is excellence with love. And they are just uh, brimming with excellence in eye care and full of love for everyone who comes and visits and puts themselves uh, under the care of those outstanding physicians. Uh, the topic that we're tackling is a little bit on the technical side. And that's why we asked Dr. Paul Nelson, our guest today from Chicago, to lay out the framework of understanding. And he's been telling us about these weird long words in the genetic library i've uh paul i don't know if you could just begin by uh giving the reference for that craig venter article and then i might just jump back in for a second to tell sure. how, to tell how i deal with this a little bit sure hmm. uh the context was a round table held uh last summer in connecticut and if you enter uh the title life what a concept into the google search box uh google will take you to the whole document not only is Craig Venter interviewed, but other leading researchers, such as Robert Shapiro of NYU, are interviewed. And it's a fascinating discussion. Uh, you could pour yourself a cup of coffee, you put up your feet, and really right. enjoy seeing how evolutionary theory is changing uh, right before our eyes. I think even the, the famous uh, physicist uh, Freeman Dyson is in there, if I remember. Yes, yes. So, he, he's also a participant. I mean, when I read that, I uh, I just devoured it. I mean, I, it was a... <laughs> of course, I'm into science, so when I say it's a page-turner, that doesn't necessarily carry over to everyone else. But life, what a concept. Life, what a concept. And, of course, the key author that you were quoting was Craig Venter, a right. DNA expert uh, in kind of decoding DNA from different animals unplanned yeah. so, uh, microbes. Now, let me jump back in and just explain that one of the things in my own talk that I give out at either universities or schools or churches, and of course I tailor it to each occasion, but my talk has near the end a slide where I bring up long words to compare, and actually in my case it's proteins. Mm -hmm. Proteins are a sequence of precise sequence of chemical letters, but that would carry over just as much to DNA, a sequence, precise sequence of letters. That's right. There's a mapping between the two. Right. And, of course, three letters in DNA becomes the one letter in protein language. So what I do is I bring up anti-disestablishmentarianism on the screen. 
which is, of course, I think 28 or so letters. And then I bring up, my, my, I say, my kid's favorite, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> so I bring that up. And then I bring two uh, Hungarian words, which, which means you all did not make that dish out of wavy leaf cabbage, did you? And uh, I learned Is that from, really a word? It really is. It's uh, 32 letters long. And then a biochemist in Hungary, I guess Hungarian specialize in long words. Uh, but this guy in Budapest said, oh, Legas Lake makes sense. Is his favorite, which is which is forty which is forty five letters long, and so then what I do is I read all four letter all four words strung together as a hundred and thirty two letter word macro word, and I say that's short that's really kind of a short word compared to what we find in proteins or for that matter in DNA. Yeah. Okay. So if we could just jump back back in and you tell us a little bit more about the excitement of orphan genes, these unique genes that just kind of spring into the genetic. Um, hyperspace isolated from anything that seems to have given rise to them, supposedly. Well, these, uh, as you have uh, suggested, can be compared uh, very strikingly to words in a dictionary with the, the caveat that genes and their protein products in terms of their characters that make them up are much longer than the words uh, that we ordinarily use. Right. Um, what, what is most striking, I think, if I had to pick one feature of orphans that's remarkable, it's that there are so many more genes uh, than anyone realized. And I think the surprise comes from the evolutionary expectation that was in place before the genomics revolution occurred in the mid-90s. Uh, as a student, I remember vividly learning that the biochemistry of life was basically the same from one cell to the next. Sure, there were lots of bells and whistles in different uh, kinds of organisms, but if you understood the biochemistry of a bacterial cell, you'd basically seen the essential hardware for any other kind of cell. That seems perhaps today not to be the case, and I find that remarkable. One of the great things about science is that it does uncover these kinds of mysteries and it forces us to go back to our theories and say, well, did we get this right? And I think that's happening right now with neo-Darwinian theory. So we're seeing a fundamental challenge to the notion that there is not only a, a problem, let's say, with an engine, the mutation selection engine of Darwin's theory, which I say is a is almost a non-entity. You know, mm -hmm. that that's that's the perhaps the most blatant problem. But you're saying that there's another problem, even in relating these different kinds of microbes, animals, plants by the genetic uh, fingerprints, the genetic long words, because there's such a profusion of unique what you call unique or, or orphan, I guess is the word we're using, yeah. genes that don't seem to have any traceable parent genes that gave, ro gave rise to them. I think, Tom, you, you put it very beautifully. Uh, ordinarily, Darwin's theory is divided into two major components. One concerns the mechanism, mm -hmm. which you've s sketched, random variation and natural selection. The other and probably more fundamental component, though, is the pattern. What is the family tree of life? Is it a single tree with one root, or are we looking at a forest of trees? Uh, and since 1859, the dominant picture, the dominant geometry has been that single tree view. And in a way that, uh, as I said in the last segment, that really surprises me, that now has been cast into doubt. Not even so much by design theorists, 
but rather by evolutionary biologists themselves. Um, one of the sort of grandfathers of this change is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, Carl Woese, who is a microbiologist at the University of Illinois. Very famous. Yes. Uh, a real prominent figure in terms of training younger scientists to look at this question. Uh, and he has said, uh, and this is a direct quote, the time has come for biology to go beyond the doctrine of common descent. And you can believe for a scientist like Woes, the noun doctrine is not a term of praise. He thinks that biology has been held back by Darwin's single tree picture. So I expect in the next five years for this trend of descent from the single tree picture, I expect for that to accelerate. Well, didn't uh, Dr. Uh, one of the famous geneticists or experts, at least in evolutionary biology, Doolittle, also challenge the single tree, simplistic tree concept? Yes. Uh, uh, w. Ford Doolittle? Maybe? W. Ford Doolittle mm. is a molecular evolutionist mm. at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Mm. And in several papers over the past few years, he has very strongly said, look, we are imposing this single tree picture on nature. But if we let the data of genetics and cell biology speak for themselves, uh, you know, they're going to tell us a very different story. In fact, in a paper published last year, he said, uh, at its base, the universal tree of life rests on an unproven assumption that given what we know about process is unlikely to be broadly true. So he has gone and and uh, thrown a fundamental challenge to that single tree picture. I mean this I mean this kind of information is so to me staggeringly important. Why is it not getting out? I mean is it just because this is internal discussions and that the the people that control the to say the high school and even university education tend to muffle or marginalize statements like that or or, or critiques like that? Well, I think that the single tree picture is so powerful and in a way so elegant, even beautiful, mm -hmm. that uh, many biologists find it hard to, to deny. I mean, it, take, it kind of takes over their imagination. Mm. Uh, and in a situation like that, contrary evidence, challenging patterns are lost. Mm. They just don't register. It's just like background noise that no one notices or something. Well, you can say, well, look, these are puzzles and, and we'll get to them. We'll put them on the shelf. But the mm -hmm. single tree picture is still too beautiful not to be true. Wow. Well, you know, we're, we're getting near the end of the segment. I want to just thank you for spending time with us today. And also, I want to say, say a huge thank you to Dr. Paul Nelson is on the phone with us from Chicago today, an expert on design theory and an expert on neo-Darwinism as well. And Dr. Paul Nelson, you have done a huge service to humanity by allowing yourself to be interviewed for the powerful educational DVD, Unlocking the Mystery of Life. You're the main commentator on the microevolutionary phenomena of bird beak evolution. And I just want to thank you. And of course, you come back and, and are interviewed many other times in that video and, of course, in the video Icons of Evolution. So I want to thank you for contributing to those two key videos. Listen, you're welcome. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Well, we've been talking to Dr. Paul Nelson, and we uh, greet you and your uh, family up there in Chicago, and uh, may, uh, may your research just uh, continue to flourish. Well, thank you, and it's been a real pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Paul Nelson. Well, that's been incredibly exciting, you know, and stimulating and important 
conversation we've had with Dr. Paul Nelson. He is one of the architects of design theory. And I think, uh, Bill, I would rank this as one of the most powerful and important programs we've ever had a chance to put together. Oh, no question about it. And uh, just to be able to hear that in a way that is, I, I felt like the way he explained it was very understandable. Mm-hmm. You, you can know, put it, you uh, can really cook, go, okay, the cookies on the shelf where yeah. almost all of us can, can reach it. Mm-hmm. And so what we're saying then is that the foundational concepts of neo-Darwinism are very strongly um, hitting some rocks. It's like, you know, they're, they're hitting some severe bumps in the road that, um, that really throw down a challenge. In this case of orphan genes we've been talking about today, we're talking about discoveries of patterns of DNA that do not fit this gradualistic fanning out of limbs from a single root, this tree extending out to different kinds of microbes, plants, animals, all the way up to mankind. And I would say that, you know, if the orphan gene um, mystery continues as more and more libraries of DNA, these genomes are decoded in different kinds of plants and animals, we're going to see this problem mount to greater and greater importance. Now, the, of course, the so what is is raised always at the end of our program, almost always. The so what question means, well, so what if there are problems with neo-Darwinian theories? So what if design theory seems to be offering a much better, much more cogent, more plausible solution? So what does that have to do with my life? Well, I have had many people tell me that they cannot go down the road of e- even considering that there is a God who is there, who created the world, who sustains the world, and who loves them. They can't buy that because of what they've been told from science. I remember a conversation I had on an airplane coming from Columbus, Ohio, down to Florida. I shared some material I'd written uh, with this teenage girl. Uh, she was visiting her, I think, dad living down here in Florida. And she said, oh, well, I guess there is a creator after all. But how do you know who the creator is? You know, can you really know who the creator is? Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) I said, thank you. I said, you have raised the key question. And the question, of course, is, is, is a normal, natural, powerful, good, logical question. Who is the creator? And that's why it's so important to understand the fit between this kind of science side. Well, there must be a creator. Has he identified himself with the amazing things that that Jesus said when he strode onto the stage of history. You know, C.S. Lewis, as a young atheist uh, professor at Oxford, was shocked to find that there were intelligent Christians like Tolkien, uh, many of the other people he was hanging out with, who had good reasons, not just because they'd been raised to believe in Christianity, but because they found the evidence to be overwhelming. So we'd love to have you uh, do your own experiment out there. Uh, read the Gospel of John. Get a Bible, but home in on, zero in on the, the book of John. That has the best collection of evidence that will ever de- lead you to the knowledge of who the Creator is and how much He loves you. Well, it's been a delight to have uh, Dr. Paul Nelson with us. Tune in every week, same time on WTBN for Darwin or Design. 